and welcome to another edition of the Beer Funnel Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Uh, summer is upon us. A little early for Oregonians, but uh, I guess we just have to get used to this new normal. Yeah. Our nice sunny weather starts in May, which freaks me out, but here it is. Yeah, but we're now mid-June, dude, so... I know, but still, we, we, had, a, we had a really June-y weekend, which I loved. It was like 58 degrees and raining. Yeah, am I, am I, uh, am I accurate in my recollection that the last one or two summers has started kind of gray and no. rainy? No. Yeah, you're wrong. <laughs> you remember all those terrible, horrible forest fires we had <laughs> after a really long, hot summer last year? Yeah, but, but that seemed to start later. I know the heat uh, kicked in pretty early, and apparently it's supposed to kick in next week, so... Uh, here we are, new normal. New normal. Uh, okay, so welcome to the Beer Fauna Podcast. With me, as always, Jeff Allworth, author of The Secrets of Master Brewers, The Beer Bible, and in 2019, look for The Widmer Way. Uh, you can find him blogging at Beer Vana. And with me is Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University. You can find him tweeting at, at Beeronomics. Uh, that's true. <laughs> so um, summer is here. Uh, it, we're tweet, we're uh, potting on a Tuesday, and on a Thursday, uh, the uh, World Cup starts. Yeah, and you're kind of a a soccer fan, a football fan. What's uh, your preferred term? I'm a huge. Uh, I'm 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 fine with either. Uh, I'm a huge soccer fan. We're in we're in the U.S. We can talk we can talk soccer. Uh, um, I'm a huge soccer fan. Really looking forward to the World Cup. Happy that uh, my last final I'm giving on Thursday. So fri- oh. Friday, so Thursday is the opening match. It's Russia and like Saudi Arabia or something. It's not particularly intriguing, but the, the good stuff starts the next day when Spain plays Portugal. So uh, looking forward to clearing my calendar for about a month and, and uh, watching soccer. The only problem is that we're here on the West Coast of the United States. So the games are like 5 a.m., 8 a.m., and 11 a.m. So 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. I can handle, but the 5 a.m. is a little bit of a pain. So we should get down to the copper. What is that thing? Not the copper. What is that thing called? I don't know. With like the Fullers and the 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 English soccer bar on Hawthorne. Oh, the Toffee Club. The Toffee Club. Yeah. We should have some a full breakfast, a full English, and and watch some soccer sometime. Yeah, I was looking. I was looking at the list of Portland pubs that are going to be open like five for the five a.m. matches, and they're going to be open for the ones involving the English team. Oh, the of England, course, England. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Um, uh, I'm actually I'm 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 starting earlier in my in my uh, World Cup preparations. I'm I'm wearing my jersey today of one of the notable uh, omissions from the World Cup, uh, Chile. This was a jersey that my kids bought me last year. Um, uh, also missing are Italy and Netherlands and the United States. Man, what's the matter with you? And Come United, on, and the United States. So there's a big four that are missing. Three big in soccer terms, and <laughs> one big because we're we're a big country. And we're out. Uh, so that's well, gonna, yeah, it's big to Americans. Uh, I mean, we 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 should be there, right? I mean, the, our the, our failure to get there was one of the most catastrophic debacles of all time. Yeah, we should be there in terms of the size of the country, the sporting history of the country, and the amount of participation in soccer at youth levels. It's really ridiculous. That. And the fact that we only needed a tie against Trinidad and Tobago <laughs> and we couldn't get it. There's that too. I mean, come on. Uh, ha- ha- being a licensed youth coach myself, I have my own opinions about what the failings of the United States are, but I think they can be summed up in in uh, one word, which is basically we don't teach uh, people to think, kids to think on the soccer. We're a very 
all our other sports in the United States are a very coach-driven sport. They're about set plays and things like that, and you don't necessarily have to be a quick thinker unless maybe you're a, a quarterback, uh, but you still have like progressions you go through. Well, in soccer, it's 90 minutes of continuous play, and the decisions have to be made by the players on the field at the time. So it's one of the things I love about playing, but it's one of the things I think we do particularly poorly when we're teaching our kids. All so there you have it. That's the problem in a nutshell. At least half the people listening think that soccer is incredibly boring. And what they're thinking is, you know what's more boring than watching soccer? <laughs> listening to a beer podcast talk about all right, it. All right. So here's, but here's my World Cup challenge to you. Okay. So the World Cup is coming up. Uh, a lot of the countries, especially the, the big headline countries, are pretty big beer countries. So I want to challenge you to the Beer World Cup. I'm, I'm game. <laughs> okay. So, uh, where's my Vuvuzela? <laughs> no, we were banning Vuvuzelas for our <laughs> Beer World Cup. Okay. So, there are some notable uh, countries from both sides. On one side of the bracket, I'm going to pick out uh, France, who I think is going to go far, uh, Belgium, England, and Brazil. So, those are the, those are the four countries on, on, uh, on one side of the bracket. The other side of the bracket that I think are, are big and might go far. Uh, um, Unfortunately, the Czech Republic is in there because I really like them to be part of our Beer World Cup. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but uh, um, Spain, uh, Germany, Mexico, uh, and who else will I throw in there? In beer terms, it's hard to say. Um, uh, let's do Croatia. You know anything about Croatian okay. beer? Okay, <laughs> no. I probably right. had to have beer, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can't think of any other... What are the big, big beer... Beer nations on this side of the bracket are. Um, that's okay. All right. So uh, so let's suppose that, um, and these can't quite happen given the brackets, but uh, Belgium and England are, are in the same. Japan? Is that Japan? Do I yeah, see? Japan's down there. Let's yeah, throw let's Japan, Japan. Okay. Japan's going to be our, our fourth from the other side of the bracket. So that'll be Japan, Germany, uh, uh, Spain, and Mexico. Okay, uh, pretty solid. Japan, actually, we'll, we'll talk a minute about Japan. They, right. They've got game. A couple of these matchups can't happen because of the brackets, so don't get too pedantic on me. Uh, but let's start, <laughs> let's start with, uh, with actually two, two, two teams that are going to face each other in the group stage, uh, Belgium and England. So go. Who wins the Beer World Cup between Belgium and England? Well, you know... <clears throat> this is a tough one. This might this be is, the toughest one. This is a really tough one. And I would say uh, if, if, the, if we were having this conversation five years ago, I'd give, it, give the edge to Belgium. Okay. But, uh, you know, the UK has really stepped up their game. Um, Indeed. I mean, you and I lament the sort of waning fortunes of Cascale yep. in uh, the UK, but um, the craft beer scene there is really taking off. And for the first time, you're seeing uh, a, country, a European country sort of develop interest in other beer styles that are not native to their own home country in yep. a kind of a serious way. Mm-hmm. So you're finding Hellas's and, you know, in, in uh, the UK, you're finding Saison's and kind of the stuff that we like here in the United States and really well-made stuff. So, so you're going to give the, the tip, tip, tip it over to England because of the variety. I think so. I think okay. so. I think, uh, if I mean, I, if I asked you to, to, to choose personal, I think I know your personal choice to choose between, uh, traditional Belgian beers and traditional English ales, what would you choose? It's really challenging. I mean, Belgium has more traditional styles, mm-hmm. extant styles, and I would give them the edge on that that score just because, you know, if you look at, uh, you've got your Cascale tradition, uh, and, but the difference between a, a bitter and a mild and a even a porter, if you throw a porter in there, a few more of those being made. Um, 
you know, there's not a not an enormous amount of diversity among that, those cask styles. Whereas when you look at uh, triples, gouzes, uh, yeah. saisons, all yeah. these things in, in Belgium, they're just yeah. very diverse. Yeah, I get it. Okay, but it's a new world, so too bad. England's more I think, diverse. I think for the moment, I would take England. All right, England. England wins the the Belgian England matchup. All right, so here's, here's not so tough. <laughs> Do send us your thoughts on that one. That could be controversial. <laughs> hey, well, w- w- the English you, team, by the way, the would English... you go with Belgium on that one? Uh. Me personally, no. Yeah. Of course, I'd go England. Okay, go, Part, go, go with my country I, I, folk. I, I see. By the way, be... the real English soccer team this year, the football team, since we're talking about England, I suppose, uh, is kind of young, a little bit exciting, not so saddled with all the expectations of the past. They could do something this year. But Spoke, spoken like a subject of the Queen. On the other hand, Belgium is enormously talented. Doesn't quite have the the history. They don't tend to to show up in big tournaments. But maybe this is the year. Wow! Nice. All right. So uh, so now we've got in 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 uh, footballing terms, huge two huge countries, two huge favorites for the real World Cup. This is Brazil and France. This is not much of a contest, I think. Uh, I can tell you a little bit about Brazilian beer. Do you? Uh, you know Brahma? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Most Brazilian beer is uh, uh, particularly poor examples of German lager styles. But there, come, uh, there is a little burgeoning there, craft, craft scene there? There is uh, a burgeoning craft scene. It's a little bit hampered, as we've talked about long ago in the pod. It's hampered by things like uh, tied houses, tied relationships between the big breweries. And so this, it's hard to find a market for your beer. It's also... Um, uh, a very complicated uh, uh, bureaucratic mess to try and do something like a, uh, a brew pub, but they do exist, and there are breweries out there. There's Colorado in the state of Sao Paulo that's doing really good. There's um, Baden-Baden, which is, as the name sounds, <laughs> a traditional German brewery <laughs> in the state of Sao Paulo. There's a couple that I know. There's a bunch more. I don't want to leave anybody out, but um, uh, they do some pretty nice pretty nice beers. What I have lamented is, uh, and it could it could have changed since I've last really dove, uh, 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 dived in deeply because I haven't been to Brazil in about three years. Is um, some some traditional uh, craft beers that are influenced by local flavors. Nice, yeah. That's that's the cool thing we're seeing all around the world, and yeah. it's the thing I'm most excited about. Yeah, uh, Colorado does a little bit of that. They play around a little bit with local stuff, but um, they can do more. So I think they're a little bit nascent. Tell me about France. Well, of course, Pierre de Garde is a classic French yep. style mm-hmm. uh, and an important uh, national tradition in brewing, uh, which we won't go too deeply on. At some point, we should do a Pierre de Garde uh, pod. That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, but I was in Paris this last summer, past summer, su- summer ago, and I was really struck by how much beer has uh, sort of um, elbowed its way into the culture and conversation. That's right. They're they're having uh, their own craft renaissance, and like like you'd expect in France, it's looking a little bit, bit different than it does elsewhere. There's a little bit more uh, interest in, uh, you know, they have, like 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 Oregonians are sort of parochial and have an interest in making everything French. And so there's a French kind of cast to their style. So I would definitely say uh, their their craft scene is is rallying and it's looking kind of in, interesting and unique and and French. So. All right. So who are we going for the champion here? I, I think you're right. We've got to give it to France. Got to give it to France. Okay. So on this side of the bracket, we've got France, England in the semifinals. The other side of the bracket, we're going to have, uh, uh, what do we say? Spain, Germany, Mexico, and Japan, right? Yeah. Okay. So let's do a, a, a here's a good one. Let's do a Spain versus Mexico. Yeah. So it turns out I'm not going to go to Spain. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. That's yeah. Too bad. Well, I, I also, I was going to do Belgium too. Yeah. Um, my life kind of got too 
overwhelming, and so I canceled the trip, unfortunately. But we, we'll hope to get to Spain and try their beer at some point. Um, again, I think it's a little similar to how you're describing Brazil. Uh-huh. Big national companies, yep. uh, growing craft, uh, you know, burgeoning craft scene, but maybe not not as strong as some of its neighbors yet, but, mm-hmm. but coming on. Okay, and then uh, Mexico. So Mexico actually is one of the rare countries that has a kind of inherited German tradition that yep. has become distinctive in its own right. Right. Uh, and uh, Vienna lagers, really Vienna lagers kind of died out everywhere else mm-hmm. and existed only because they continued to be brewed in, in uh, Mexico. Um, and then, of course, they have their wonderful craft beer scene, which I got to experience last year in, in fair, fair depth. And it's it's good. Um, they have uh, dozens or hundreds now breweries, and some of them are, are quite exceptional. Yeah. So uh, my guess is, not knowing so much about the Spanish one, that that Mexico is probably ahead of them. Yeah, I wonder if it's easier. I wonder if Mexico is a little bit more like the United States in in uh, being a bit easier to to get into the market and op- open up breweries and things um, as it would be in in Spain. Uh, Who knows. Yeah, well, we when we actually interviewed for for the pod a, a guy from Mexico, and he talked about the regulatory change, and mm-hmm. that's such a critical deal. It sounds like in in Brazil, that's one of the big barriers, yep. and in Mexico, until recently, it was a big barrier. And once you reduce that, then you have wonderful new breweries opening. Okay, so Mexico into the semifinals. Yeah, on that one, and now we have uh, Japan and Germany. Obviously, Japan. <laughs> <laughs> Japan has more game than you'd think, though. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Sake is beer. Right, it's fermented uh, grain. Right, and uh, it's an ancient tradition. Yeah, you made that point the other, by the way, in your I think your blog or on on your tweet tweet the other a few weeks ago. Yeah, and uh, it really struck me because I never I know you always think about it as wine because they always totally. describe rice it wine. as Japanese rice wine, but yeah. it's not wine at all. No, it's beer, and they also have their own burgeoning uh, craft beer scene, and it's kind of interesting. A lot of the old sake breweries are losing uh, market share, uh-huh. having sales go down, so they're starting to brew regular beer. Uh-huh. Um, and some of them are using rice and, and, and rice, uh, 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 sake yeasts. And so they're getting really interesting kind of character, even if they're brewing styles that will be familiar, familiar to us. So Japan is really kind of an interesting little country. It's not, it's not, it's not in Germany's class, yeah. obviously. Our, our local, our local, uh, uh, out of town, but our Oregon brewery Rogue has really been big in Japan for, for quite a while. They've been very active there. And so there is a, a demand. Yeah, and the West Coast in general has that. Japan has embraced the West Coast in general. I understand. And, yeah, and uh, so okay. Yeah, but let's. But say, Germany's let's, Germany. Let's, yeah, let's put Germany forward. <laughs> Sorry, uh, just like in soccer, you know. Yeah, uh, you want somebody new. You want somebody a little more daring. But nope. At the end of the day, as it's the, that 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 uh, history and tradition and consistency carries the, you through. As the English say, I think it was Gary Lineker maybe who said this at the beginning. But uh, soccer is a, a simple game. Uh, uh, two teams of 11 play for 90 minutes, and in the end, Germany always wins. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Uh, okay, so we have uh, Germany and Mexico in one semifinal, and we have uh, England and uh, France in the other semifinal. Did I get that right? You did. Yeah, okay, so England, France. Again, we talked gotta, about them for the most part. So yeah, now you got to go? go England here. I yeah, the variety, English. the tradition, the amount of alcohol consumed <laughs> beer consumed <laughs> yeah if we if we announced that uh, france was a better beer country than england on this year pod uh 
All right, we folks, might have a big lot news. Of, big we might, news. We might have a lot of trouble. England's into the World Cup final. <laughs> uh, and then this is also a little bit uh, of a, a mismatch. Uh, Germany, Mexico. Uh, no, Germany. Yeah, Germany, Mexico, right? I think um, it was, yeah. You said Mexico and my brain said Japan. Um, yeah, I think, again. Got to be Germany. Yeah. All right. So In, in beer brewing terms, what do you, it's like you take uh, uh, hops, water, and grain and blend them with yeast, and in the end, Germany makes the best Germany, beer. Oh, Germany keeps making the best beer. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good take on it. Uh, all right. So this is actually kind of interesting because England, you gave props for their sort of new, innovative, sort of going beyond the traditional styles embracing other styles and you wouldn't necessarily say the same thing about germany would you no they've tried but um germany is so hidebound um we're gonna in our in our uh as yet i think unannounced uh podcast well the title of the podcast about german beer so we'll be talking about german beer yeah uh we're gonna talk a little bit about some of the changes that are happening uh, at least among one brewery in this beer style we're addressing here but but for the most part uh german drinkers do not are not daring or experimental and uh they keep brewers from being too crazy um and when when german brewers try things like ipas or pale ales they just are not good I, I, all the versions i've had have just been kind of failures so okay sense an upset uh i would say definitely germany's new game is very weak compared to other countries in europe probably the weakest but their uh, traditional game is but their traditional game is maze balls yeah so i don't know you gotta make a call man i don't know what is what's your vote you're 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 a subject of the queen so well, i know yeah, where you're I'm, gonna go <laughs> <laughs> uh, i don't know i've been so into what? german beer since uh as i've mentioned on the pod before my trip to my f- not my first trip to germany my first trip to germany where i really paid close attention to the beer culture and tried to and tried to embrace it a little bit. I've been just so into German beer since then. Here, I, I have a clever idea here. Why don't yeah. we leave it up to the to the to the listeners oh, to that's provide a good, their idea? Good twist. Okay. Yeah, and we'll um, I'll say who I think is the best on our next pod if we remember. Okay. And you guys can all weigh in uh, and tell us if you think that England and maybe we can say maybe do a Twitter poll. Yeah, Twitter poll. Yeah. Uh, and also, let us know who's got the best game right now in twenty, you know, uh, June 2018, which is the best beer country. Yep. Okay. Sounds All good. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so, so that was our Beer World Cup. So the Real World Cup starts on Thursday. Set your alarms, and uh, and we'll uh, find our way to watch one of the early England games at the Toffee Club. I'm definitely rooting for Belgium in the Real World Cup, by the way. Belgium, come on. They're, they're, worth, they're worthy of your attention. They're they got like 5 million people, man, of course. That's, that's amazing. Right. And they're an enormously talented side. That's with, sweet. With some, with some of the world's best players. So it's going to be fun. They'll be really fun to watch. So I, I recommend watching them. All right. So uh, now let's get into our topic. As we mentioned, we're talking about uh, German beer today. Uh, and in fact, as the days lengthen into summer, beer drinkers have been following the warmth to beer gardens outside. Oh, we need more. That's one thing about Germany. I, I know. I want to I wanna start just a big, giant beer garden now. Uh, and if beer gardens represent the perfect place to drink, then Weiss beers are the perfect beer to drink. And while they are the quintessential Bavarian summer beer, they are in many ways curiously non-Bavarian. They're ales, they have expressive yeast character, they're made of malted wheat, and they're cloudy and rustic. We're going to do one of our stylistic deep dives today and look into this wonderful, unique beer. I threw that deep dive in there just for you. <laughs> One of my favorite terms. <laughs> okay, but first, of course, the news. Uh, 
All right, so the first news item is the news in Trump. And no, it doesn't have to do with denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, it has to do uh, with uh, uh, steel and aluminum tariffs that uh, a while back, actually for a while, President Trump has been talking about. And we talked about the effect on, uh, on the brewing industry. Um, at the time, he exempted North American neighbors and the EU. Well, <laughs> that was then. On May 31st, the exemptions expired and Trump declined to extend them. So uh, we now have um, pretty hefty steel and aluminum tariffs, which is not making our neighbors very happy. That's right. And may make your beer more expensive, yeah. among many other things. Your breweries, your everything. Yeah. Uh, uh, interestingly, uh, especially apropos of our last podcast, which yeah. is the cannabis industry, uh, he announced he might support an end to the federal ban on cannabis. Which, who knows? Yeah. Trump says one thing one day and another thing another day. But yeah, it's not actually, it wouldn't be entirely out of keeping with his sort of approach. I mean, it's sort of a populist thing. It's pro-business. Um, there's, you know, there's not really a big downside to it. He does, he's not a moral. But he does pander to the, to the uh, yeah, to the, the moral right or the, the righteous. Also, he really, really, really hates Jeff Sessions, and Jeff Sessions really, 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 really hates, <laughs> hates cannabis. cannabis that's so. true. It probably is just a poke in the eye to Jeff <laughs> yeah, Sessions. It totally is. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, how dysfunctional can an administration get when when he outwardly despises the people he he put in uh, to their positions? Totally. Uh, okay, so that's the first name. What's next? All right. Uh, the second one is a little local news item. Oh, yeah. uh, the city of Portland will be the site of the 40th annual Homebrew Con. Wow, uh, 40th. 40th annual. I know. It's kind of amazing. Huh. Um, the Conference of the American Homebrewers Association. 3,000 people will attend 66 sessions of 92 speakers, including me, yours truly. Uh, and that will happen uh, this June 28th through 30th. Um, Where's it going to be? At the convention center? It is going to be, yes, at the convention center. I think that's correct. And what are you going to be speaking on? That? I am going to be speaking on the topic um, that sort of animates my uh, most recent book, Secrets of Master Brewers. Yep. Um, I'll be talking about national tradition mm-hmm. and how uh, I'll use two examples uh, from different countries, talk about what mm-hmm. national tradition is, and mm-hmm. then how you can brew in your home brewery uh, in the way that... Uh, these countries, the, how they brew in these countries. Cool. And, um, I think it's something that most homebrewers are kind of unaware of, and so the techniques are often novel and interesting. And once you learn them, then you can apply them to other sty- types of beer you brew, and it just kind of gives you a broader repertoire. Now, have you attended one of these before? I attended last year's in Minneapolis. Huh. Is and it a it, big deal? It is a big deal, especially among homebrewers. It's amazing. I just mean, is it, is it uh, well attended? Lots of... Yeah. Wow. Cool. I mean, three thousand people. So, oh yeah, yeah, that's big. It's it's um it is what it is. It's not it's not as big as CBC, but it's much more avid and it's much more in some ways. Um, it's not tinged by uh by commerce right. or capitalism. It's right. just fun. It's just homebrewers. <laughs> yeah, and there's this one thing called Club Night, which uh, Stan Hieronymus, before I went to last the last one, mm-hmm. uh, said, you got to go to club night. I didn't know what it was, but what it is, is it's, it's, it's a big room somewhere. It'll be in some ballroom in, uh, the, the conference center and all the, a whole bunch of local clubs will have set uh, up right, their right, beer right. and you can go around and taste all their local beers. Like a, it's like a, a beer fest, but it, instead of commercial breweries, they're home breweries. Oh, nice. And it is so much fun. Everybody's just rocking. They're having a great time and you get to taste some 
really exceptional beer that is often super experimental. You think we talk about innovation and experimentation, the homebrewers are off the charts. Sure, because they don't have to worry about commerce. That's right. And I'll tell you, if you walk around that thing with Stan Aronimus, <laughs> you might as well be with, like, Bono. I mean, that guy is the biggest rock star. He just, like, double takes everywhere. It's kind of like me hanging out with you anywhere around town. Yeah, exactly not it's at all really like that. damn annoying, I got to tell you. <laughs> if, one, if one person recognizes me in my own town, I feel like it's a Someone a always big recognizes you, uh, and well, you're always chatting them up and I'm always sitting there just waiting alright uh, finally Tucker's malting of Newton uh, Newton Abbott in Devon England announced that they are going out of business it was one of four floor maltings left in England uh, from the press release operating on this scale has finally proven to be uncompetitive in the modern world and increasing capacity within the old traditional building would have been very difficult while not jeopardizing the quality of the product that's such an English statement it's so sad but it's right up your alley. I chose that one because it just seems to sort of exemplify things you have said on this podcast over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Economies of scale and monetization. Uh, floor maltings, though, are there are there modern floor maltings, or this is, is this what, floor malting going the way of the dinosaur? In general? I don't. This, so this this is this is a little speculative on my part. Um, they they kept talking about they are floor maltings, and they kept talking about the most traditional style, right. which would be floor malting. Yeah. So when they said they're one of one of only four remaining. Yeah. I assume they're talking about floor maltings. I don't know if there's some kind of industrial floor malting that you can do or other thing, but uh, some they weren't super specific on that point. Yeah. But. So so just to just to tell us, um, uh, tell the listener again what you can. What's the difference between a beer made with floor malted grain and a uh, modern malted grain? Floor maltings is something you can only do in the winter uh, when the temperature is cool and you let the um, the grain germinate in a kind of uh, just sort of like a basement, right? And it's not a very deep bed. It's not a very good way to make uh, a lot of grain fast in, in industrial uh, scale things. They have much deeper beds and they can move things along faster with tines and stuff. Old mm-hmm. floor maltries, it's guys out there with rakes turning it over, right. and um, it's slower, uh, but um, produces a more characterful malt. Okay. So more expensive, more characterful malt. So it's you, you get more, it's more expressive in the beer. Yeah. Yeah. So it could be that, you know, that clearly the demand for floor malting has dropped, but it might be just the case that um, there is a stable demand. It's just too small to support that many. Yeah, it could be. I've never even heard of this malting. So yeah. that goes to show that they were, they were not a... It is too bad. That's one of the things that really struck me... Um, traveling around England is it used to be hyper local. So you'd have your little maltings down the road and you'd have your, your little hop fields, you know, in, in Kent. And, right. uh, it felt, it felt very communal. Like there was this little, this little, uh, economy, local economy that it all revolved around beer. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, that's, that's too bad. Uh, okay. So let's turn now to our, uh, main topic. And I'm going to suggest since we have a number of these beers, um, our main topic today is, as we said, is about vice beer. Uh, we have four examples, and since we have four and we need to talk about them, um, I'm going to suggest we just dive right into the most uh, traditional example we have um, as a way to get started. Cool. Well, you pour and <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll talk. All right. Yeah. You're, <laughs> you're up, man. I'm going to drink. <laughs> so this first one we have is Ondex, which I've never had. Uh, the Benedictine Brewery uh, just south of... Is it just south? Just south of Munich? Somewhere near Munich. Just north of Munich. I don't know. Somewhere very near Munich. Located just outside, it says. <laughs> just outside. <laughs> right. 
these guys are, are really famous for their, their Hellas, um, which is the beer that I've had many times. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll try this. And as you're pouring, I will, uh, I'll mention a little bit about the history of the style, which is so associated with Bavaria. In fact, in many places, you'll see it referred to as Bavarian Weizen. Yeah. I may just embarrass myself, but if my knowledge of geography is correct around Munich, it's south where the mountains really start. And, that, and they say they're in the mountains, so maybe. I think it is south. That's what my first thought was, but then right. I immediately dis- mistrusted myself. <laughs> well, well, we'll probably hear about it. <laughs> All right, go. Well, here we go. Ready? Excellent. Um, this style actually originated in Bohemia, uh, as best we can tell, probably in the 1400s, and it arrived in Bavaria right around 1500, um, which, if you are doing the math in your head, was after Reinheitsgebot was uh, adopted as the law. And uh, Reinheitsgebot, if you recall, was uh, stipulated that you had to use barley. Not wheat. Ah. So this is an interesting thing. Right. So you got a nice head on so that. An, so, yeah. Well, I was trying to make some nice uh, beer pouring sounds. So you, I, I you, roused a pretty good head. Well, these things are, we're going to talk about it is pretty what, what characterizes them. But they are an, it's an effervescent style, and you really want to build that big, beautiful white head, which uh, well, is so characteristic. Well, I have done it. You've done it. And you will, you will, you will see how much the, the yeast character pops there. The... Mm, man, that, that's a really... F- smells like a really fresh beer. The, the wheat is also... It smells like a fresh loaf of bread. Nice. Uh, spice, a little bit of clove, wheaty, and not a whole lot of the uh, characteristic uh, banana flavor in the nose that I was noticing. It's true. It's a little more wheaty, clovey than banana. Yeah. Uh, but I do get a little banana. So these styles are characterized by isoamyl acetate, which is an ester, mm-hmm. and that is the banana flavor. And then the the clove is a type of phenolic, right. uh, which we'll talk. These both of these are come from the yeast characters, yeast driven beer. So we'll talk about how that happens. And it's very a light straw color. Yeah, not it's, very cloudy. It looks like maybe it has settled out. Which, uh, but then why is it so fresh? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but it's I mean for a German beer, it's quite it's still quite hazy. That's true. All right, here we go. So when I in my um, in my short stay in Bavaria, I had to um, I had to pry my family. Or I had to drag my family to the, the beer beer experiences. So I decided I was really going to focus on on Hellas. So I actually didn't have much vice beer when I was in in Bavaria. Um, Even well, though you were out in the you you were there at the time when you could actually sit under the chestnut trees and yep, sure did. Did you have any? Uh, not at a beer garden, no. I had I was served by spirit at the house we stayed. It's one of the the, the experiences I most want to have. And I, I was in Germany because I was poor uh, in the colden times when there was no uh, there was no there was no sitting outside. Yeah, no, it was beautiful. It was warm, and I drank white by spear then, but I, it was not outside. And I and I super dig the Hellas. Um, yeah, I, I do too. And I, I was kind of really interested in trying to get to know all four of the big Hellas varieties in and around Munich. So Hofbrauhaus, Polliner. Uh, Ondex. Did you have any Ondex? No, I had Augusteiner and uh, what's the fourth? Uh, Spaten? Yeah, maybe Spaten. Yeah, Spaten. Yeah, so those four were sort of the ones you found all around town. And so I was trying to decide, by the way, Augusteiner. 
Yeah, totally. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's get back to let's go back to vice beer. So I didn't get vice beer. Uh, I now regret it now that you've told me that I should. Yeah, um, they're just, great. Uh, but uh, like all things that are good in Germany, it came from uh, Czech Republic. Right. Well, the, 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 uh, they have a, a long and interesting relationship, these two places, Bohemia and Bavaria. So, uh, But let's not play any um, partisan let's games. Let's not start any Trumpian border disputes. That's right. So it, it, when it arrives, they have to figure out whether it can be brewed here. And uh, uh, Hans, so, I think so, I skipped so the, a word the, here. The... The, oh God, the, the Heinzgebot, Ryan Heinzgebot. Ryan Heinzgebot was, I mean, this so, was serious. Like you really couldn't. Yeah. So there was this guy, the Duke of Regensburg, uh, oh no, so I'm sorry, Dagensburg, mm-hmm. uh, set up um, a, a right that he granted to himself. He sort of carved <laughs> <Best> out, <type. laughs> it, it was a duke called the ducal right mm-hmm. to brew wheat beer. And ah. he, was, he, was, he granted it to himself and he was the only one who did it. Ah, okay. And he did that for a hundred years. Uh, which lasted until about 1602. So he had the only... He had the only... only the only one... The Bison only, brewery. Or, right. Wow. Uh, and then uh, he that, that that family line died out. And the Duke of uh, uh, Bavaria, uh-huh. I believe it was Wilhelm, it, the beer was becoming popular. And so he, he took the right himself and parsed parceled it out to a few breweries. I but see. you had to be a brewery that that had a, the ducal right to make this to make type some, of beer. To make a beer out of wheat instead of barley. Right. <laughs> uh, and for the next couple hundred years, it was a pretty popular beer, like kind of wildly popular, uh, until about the 1800, early 1800s when it started to die out in popularity. Mm-hmm. And it was really dying out through the course of the uh, 1800s. Um, and would probably have completely gone away, except for, uh, and I point to one of our beers here. Uh, so everyone can see. <laughs> uh, George Schneider, in the mid-19th century, uh-huh. decided that he wanted to open a, a wheat brewery. Uh, and he got one of these ducal rights. He purchased one of these ducal rights. Ah. But he also, he the, the, the style was almost dead. I right. think there was one other brewery. And so he he petitioned uh, the Bavarian Court or, or somebody. Because loggers just came in and, and swept everything aside. Yeah. Okay. In the 19th century, loggers really became transcendent yeah. in, uh, in, in Bavaria. But he went to the government and managed to abolish the ducal thing mm. uh, in 1872. Uh, and started it and, you know, started his brewery. And, and that was his brewery. This is the Schneider brewery which still exists that was in munich um it was relocated to kelheim after uh, one of the world wars i think Mm -hmm. um and that and he situated that brewery in kelheim in a traditional brewery wheat beer brewery that had been there for hundreds of years which had previously had the ducal right so it's actually this Uh. kind of like long tradition that kept the whole thing going so uh it was almost dead except for Schneider. Yeah, and it stayed kind of unpopular, total niche style. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in the 1960s, it was only 3% of Bavaria's production, not mm-hmm. produced anywhere else. Um, and then it started to become more and more popular as it was kind of recast as this uh, thing you, you drink under the chestnut trees in the summer. And it became more and more popular. And now has, is enjoying this big renaissance across the country. And mm-hmm. there's even wheat beer breweries, Weizen beer breweries outside of uh, Bavaria making it. But, uh, but all the really good ones are in, in Bavaria. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it seemed to me that the beer gardens that I uh, visited um, 
almost always had sort of three big styles. There was the the Hellas, the Weissbier, and the Rattler. Yeah. Those are like the three things I always remember seeing. And This uh, goes back to our English-German thing. Like that's the cool thing about Germany is the traditions survive. This is the, we're drinking a 500-year-old beer. Yeah. Uh, but the bad thing is it means other traditions are hard to be born. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and by the way, it seemed like people were drinking them in sort of equal parts. Yeah, it's true. Rattlers were, were obviously very popular. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what do you think? Is that a fairly uh, good example of a traditional vice beer? Does it taste a bit thin to you? I'm feeling like it's not as fluffy as I would like. Uh, yeah. The nice thing about this style is um, it's because it is yeast-driven, you can really afford to uh, make it your own by dialing up the dialing up or down the 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 different constituent flavors that come out of the yeast. And this one is a really low banana one, which actually I really like the the ones that are very, very banana-y, um, which are kind of many many of the more mainstream ones. They really try to dial that up because it's so sweet tasting. Yeah, I was going to say uh, my take on it, and this is maybe a weird thing to say. You might tell me that I'm not that weird. Is it tastes more uh, Belgian-y, and maybe that's just because it's popping the clove. and It's a very Belgian style. I There was a point at which a decade ago or something, I was drinking it and I thought, this is like a Belgian beer. This oh. tastes exactly like a Belgian beer. It's yeah. so weird. So this one in particular, because it's so, the banana is subdued to, to be almost non-existent. And I'm, I do associate banana with uh, German Weiss beers. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, and it's also kind of a little thinner the way I also think of a lot of Belgian beers. The, the phenols are also not a fixed property. Isoamyl acetate mm-hmm. Is this ester that is so to say so much like banana? They put yeah. it in candy to to make candy taste like banana. Right. But the phenols are a class of compounds that can taste like um, a b- bunch of different stuff. So we always talk about clove as being the classic presentation. But in this one, it's more like kind of like witch hazel or sort of a woody phenol. Mm. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. Sometimes they're smoky. Um, so th- it's an unusual phenol that I do like. Yeah. So. Interesting. I find it, it just, yeah, it feels a little thin to my palate, but... Yeah, little, I know what you're saying, but I haven't had enough vice beers to really say relatively what it's... But I, I, I do I do get what you say. One thing I like in a good good vice beer is it should finish crisply, because mm-hmm. um, it's kind of a full, sweet flavor. Yes. Uh, but if it if it finishes that way, then it doesn't it doesn't satisfy under, you know, when you're sitting in the beer garden. You want to have something crisp, and this is crisp. Yeah, it's not cloying at all. It doesn't stay on the tongue, no, not at all. Totally. Uh, all right. So how do you make it? Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about, or let's, should we crack open the second one? Yeah, let's go. <laughs> uh, I'm going right. to hand this to you. By you the way, you me? were talking about glassware. You were oh, l- yeah. lamenting your lack of adequate glassware, but you were saying something about how you cheers each other with these. Yeah. So the classic, uh, glass is, looks a little bit like a, uh, uh, Pilsner flute. Mm-hmm. They're called a vase more, more commonly. Uh, but they have this big, thick, uh, Base. Right. And they have kind of this delicate glass wall, uh, almost like a wine glass, like an elongated wine glass. And so they're not so, you don't want to smash them at the top. So in Bavaria, right. people always clink at the bottom oh, to make sure okay. that you don't smash your glass. That's that's wise. Yeah. And by the way, another <laughs> of the beer garden things is a lot of them now make you put a deposit round uh, down for your your big moss glass because apparently the tradition uh-huh. is to like smash them together so hard that 
to see if you can smash it together so hard that it breaks. Well, maybe maybe the idea is you're supposed to do it just up until it breaks, <laughs> but often they misjudge or something like that. I don't know. I can't remember. They've this. had several mosses, and so they're smashing the, a little The harder. mosses were getting were not coming back. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. And so now you have to pay, I don't know, a euro or something just for the glass, and then you get the euro back when you t- return the, uh-huh. the big moss glass. All right, so this is what? Uh, Weinstefan uh, Dunkelweizen right. or Dunkel uh, Hefeweissbier. We're going to talk about nomenclature too. Actually, let's do that now while we're, since we're going for another one. So, yeah, might as well. Um, uh, Weisse is means white. It does not mean wheat. Right. And this goes back to the tradition of having brown beers and white beers. And brown beers were your barley beers. And uh, look at poor, you're doing that well. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> You're really getting a nice lush head there. Uh, the wheat was often uh, what was known as wind dried malt, so uh-huh. it would be uh, air dried. Right. So the you know very very pale, and it would produce these very white beers, and there were so it was known as white beers, even though they're now typically always it, it's a synonym for wheat beer. So Weiss beer, Weizen, uh, these are two terms for the same kind of beer. Uh, Bavarian Weizen is another thing people say, mm-hmm. and Hefeweizen, which is the kind that is cloudy, which is what we mostly mean when we're talking about Weiss beer. Um, the Hefeweizen also means that because the, the wheat is also in solution there. So yeah. all of those refer to the same thing. Okay. But there are other kind of beers. Like we're drinking one now that's a Dunkel Hefeweizen beer or whatever they <laughs> called it. Hefeweizen yes. beer. Hefeweizen beer Dunkel. Uh, so Dunkelweizen is made with a little bit more uh Dark malt, right? Sometimes has a little nutty character. Uh, otherwise, similar. Um, there's uh, Crystal Weizen, which is a clear beer. Ah. It's made without the the haze. Mm-hmm. Rauk Weizen, what Rauk means smoked, so you get a smoky quality. Um, this is a what would have been a much more common style, you know, in earlier centuries. Um, there are only a couple that I know of that are still made. Uh, you know, in, in a traditional way, there's there's many more in, in the United States that got made, but um, mostly died out. And then uh, Weizenbach is a strong version of this, and uh, Schneider makes one of the most famous ones of those. Uh, so those are just different kinds of the same beer, and they're all made in uh, the same way with just slight variations. The Dunkelweizen will have different malts. The Kristallweizen will either be uh, clarified or have a different ratio of, of wheat to get it to uh, clump up and fall out. Um, the and the Weizenbach is just strong, but otherwise they're made the same way. So we can talk about how they're made. Okay, so this uh, Dunkelhefeweizen uh, does not have the same yeast character that's popping on the nose. It actually has much more of a a, a, a wheat character. I, I would say you try. So. Weinstefan provides yeast to a lot of people, and their wheat strain is one of the most common. And it really throws a lot of isoamyl acetate, a lot of banana, if you don't, mm. if, if you're not careful, and sometimes can get overwhelming. So that's interesting. Yeah, well, let's see what you think. Maybe it's just a comparison of the two. No, I, I agree. Mm-hmm. I'm tasting it. I'm going through that head. All right, that lush head that I I roused. Hmm. <coughs> So you have, I'm taking it you've never had a Dunkelweizen. Uh, not that I'm aware of. Interesting. So this is a pretty, car- uh, pretty. I, I would call this a pretty classic presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, that banana is in the palate. 
and there is a little bit of nuttiness. Yeah. So, um, just it's kind of a it, it's not designed to be a massive change. No, a Dunkelweizen nice, and, a, and a regular Hefeweizen are really similar beers. Yeah, it's a nice um, it's a nice balanced beer. The, there is a little banana, but it's very subdued. Um, yeah, there is nuttiness, so the the the, the wheat character comes through. Many people consider the Weinstefan to be the kind of the, the, the world classic example. Mm. I, I don't actually, but um, it is a really good one. The interesting thing is their Hefeweizen is actually not that banana y. I mean, it's got a fair amount, but they work with the yeast so it doesn't get super crazy. Now, this dark malt, is it uh, smoked at all? I feel like I'm tasting just a hint of smoke, but that could be my imagination running wild. Not typically. Okay. <laughs> Mm. I think that's a phenolic you're picking up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so phenolics can can have a little bit of uh, a smoky quality. Yeah, that was one bridge too far, by the way. The the Weinstefan trip, the trip out to Weinstefan mm. from from Munich. Uh, the family wasn't going for that. <laughs> it's too bad. It's <laughs> I a, tried. It's I tried really... to make that happen. <laughs> it was a very cool place. Uh, it's not too far. As I recall, maybe like half an hour or something. Yeah, it's close. Yeah. It's in Freising. Yeah, and so it's a really it's a really short, very short. Which is north. It's where the yes, it's, it's where it the airport. North. This is. I can tell you. Yeah, it's just past the airport, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking about doing that on the same day we left, but we left kind of early that day, so that would have been crazy. I dropped Sally off. Yeah, freezing. I dropped dropped Sally off at the airport and then went to Weinstefan. Yeah. So poor Sally missed missed it. All right, let's talk about how you make it. Yeah. So how you make it? This is this is the most interesting part in my view of this whole beer style. Uh. I went to Schneider, mm-hmm. this brewery I was talking about earlier, and I talked to Hans Peter Drexler, who is one of the the most, uh, co- just the coolest brewer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've talked about him on this pod before, and I talk about him a lot because he just is so interesting. Yeah. Um, classic uh, brewmaster of a certain era. He started there in the '80s, so mm-hmm. he's like the same age as John Keeling or, or these guys. Right, has that formal quality. Right, um, wears a tie. Uh, he wore, no, he, oh. well, when I, when I visited him, he wore the traditional, uh, Bavarian jacket. Oh, excellent. Yeah. yeah. That was what really struck me of these head brewers in England. They all were in suit and tie. He was definitely in the equivalent, but it was Bavarian. Right. Yeah. So it was Good very cool. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so he walked me through the process and since they have the most traditional process, I, I kind of got to see how that worked. And then I later visited Eyinger and, and listened to their process. Uh, so you start out, um, with a grist of, I think by lot has to be 50%, mm-hmm. uh, or at least by tradition it's 50%, but maybe as much as 70%. Right. Schneider's is 60. Okay. Uh, and that's malted wheat in, right. in um, you can use unmalted wheat. It will ferment fine. And, and, tr- it, and traditionally the rest of the grist is barley or? Yeah. Barley. Okay. Um, in beer you can use unmalted wheat and they do in Belgium, but in Germany, no unmalted wheat, all malted. Okay. So then I happen to have here the, st- the, the mash schedule that we have uh, from Schneider. From Schneider, excellent. Which is crazy, <laughs> which I put in Secrets of the Master Brewers. And if you want to make a beer like Schneider, you, you have should to- first buy the Secrets of the Master Brewers. Yep, yeah, that's true. You should definitely do that. And then you have seven mash recipes. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> Get ready. This is an arduous task. Have, you have your thermometer and your uh, stopwatch at the, at the ready. That's right. So this is their process. Uh, 95 degrees, these are all uh, Fahrenheit, for 10 minutes, um, 122 degrees for 10 minutes, and these two rests will help release the ferulic acid. Okay. Now, ferulic acid is a thing that exists in both uh, 
uh, wheat and barley, uh, but principally it actually comes from the barley. And you have certain uh, yeast strains, which are known as POF positive. Of course. Which stands for phenolic off flavor. Uh, they are positive for oh, phenolic off flavor. So no, bad. So you want that in, you don't want that in lagers. You definitely want that in this beer. Ah, so they have a POF uh, positive yeast strain. But in order to get that, uh, the phenolics, the phenolics you really want to have this frulic acid rest. Uh, I see. So you start with that. Uh, then you have a protein rest at 131 degrees for 15 minutes, an amylase rest at 144 degrees for 15, for 10 minutes, uh, another amylase rest at 155 degrees for 20 minutes. Then you go all the way up to 161 degrees for 20 minutes, and that's just at the edge of conversion. Wow. Yeah. So this thing is getting converted right, left, and center. I mean, it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's all over he's the just hitting, He's hitting every single thing. He's trying to extract everything out uh-huh. of it. And then you do a mash out at 172. A really high mash out. Yeah, so uh, just I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but the amylase rest, tell me about amylase. So amylase is uh, a... Uh, uh, enzyme uh-huh. and it's just um, there's there's two kinds of enzymes and they if you do a single infusion mash you're trying to average and get so that the two rests go from about 140 right two or four up to like 156 and at the lower end you're going to get one kind of enzyme at the higher end you're going to get another kind I of see. enzyme and so this way you get both enzymes these enzymes cut up the complex sugars into more fermentable sugars right so the more of this you do the more sugars you end up with uh, the more okay. food for the yeast and the more that gets fermented out and presumably maybe the the more um uh diverse the flavor profile well it depends i mean uh you get flavor from unfermented malts you get body and flavor right and so it just kind of depends on what you're looking to do in your in uh. your beer i've never in this book of all the breweries i talked to i never saw anything Quite <laughs> that, that, that elaborate. So there you go. Well, I think that's a perfect introduction into our next beer. Let's let's do it. <clears throat> the Schneider, the Schneider Weisse. So Weissen Edelweisse. I will stop here to say that, despite the fact that uh, Hans Peter Drexler was a man of a certain age uh, <laughs> and a German, and you know looked like he was probably stayed and proper, uh-huh. he was a radical. Uh, he was, if he lived in America, he would be on the, well, and in Germany, he definitely is on the cutting edge of innovation and experimentation. And one of the things he did was he visited the United States a while back, a decade or so ago, mm-hmm. and tasted a Sierra Nevada pale ale. Ah. And he was really impressed with Discovered the Discovered a West Coast flavor profile? Yeah. He was like, these hops, these are interesting. I wonder if I worked with my local holler, because uh, Kelheim is about... 30 minutes, 45 minutes from the Hollertau hop fields. Yeah, yeah, just right there. He thought, I wonder if these esters that are getting produced in my cloudy beer would work very well with uh, some of these more assertive hops. And so he began to make different beers that you did this, which if you follow trends in American brewing, you might note that cloudy beers, esters, and hops uh, are sort of a big deal right now. Those all characterize hazy IPAs. Yeah. So he discovered this maybe a decade ago um, and began uh, experimenting. And we, we don't get so many of those over here. And I hope this is one of them. They all have these different things tapped for. And yeah, and you wouldn't know from the label. Well, I'm examining the label here. You wouldn't know a thing about 
any of this stuff you're talking about unless you knew, because they're not advertising it. He made a Nelson Sauvin. Oh, no, I'm sorry. If you look really closely, they do have the ingredients and it includes Cascade hops. You're right. But they don't make a big deal of it on the on the label. And I'm sorry, I'm going to I'm going to just jump back in history for one quick moment because uh, it is now apparently uh, brewed according to the Heinzgebot, uh, uh, Heinzgebot. <laughs> I can well, never get that right. <laughs> so, yes. that, so that has changed over time to allow wheat? Once unification happened, ah, okay. uh, the two halves of the country, new country, had to figure out a way to incorporate their two brewing styles. And Bavaria actually said, we will not reunify unless you... Uh, <laughs> Allow uh, wheat and beer? No, unless you have, oh. in, unless you adopt Ryan Heiskeboat. Oh, okay. And these other breweries said, "Well, we make weird gozes and kolsches and stuff, right. and they don't. We don't know how to brew it, Ryan Heiskeboat." So they re- kind of rewrote it and uh, made these exemptions. And this and was, so this was roughly when uh, at reunification. So actually, reunification happened in 1871, and okay. it took them until the early 20th century to <laughs> hammer out <laughs> how to how to make this accommodation. So. You think you think free trade deals are hard? <laughs> That's right. Talk about beer in Germany. By the way, I don't know if we if we actually discussed a little bit about the the Weinstefan, uh, uh, yeah, Dunkelweizen, um, but it is also quite cloudy, uh, and it has sort of an amber tone. An, an interesting thing is, but also very effervescent with a very yeah, a very uh, flush head. Uh, the the other interesting thing about uh, Schneider, we do not have Schneider Weisse here, which is their classic beer. Right. Uh, it is about the color of that Dunkelweizen. It oh. is really dark. It's much like Saison Dupont is uh, a uh, a kind of beer like no other Saison, and uh, okay. Pilsner Urquell is a beer like no other no, Pilsner. Pilsner. Yeah, Schneider Weisse is a beer that's unlike any others. It's darker. It's got many more phenolics. It's more characterful. It's just weirder than other ones. They didn't dare go there. So here's the funny thing about the Edelweiss, which is that it has a it's effervescent and it rouses quite a a thick head, but it dissipates very quickly. I wonder if that has to do with the Cascade hops. Maybe it just doesn't taste, taste very fresh. I think it's an old bottle. Oh, okay. That could be it. Yeah. Unfortunately. And this is one of those styles where at the brewery, they were just amazing. Yeah. That's the hard thing about these imported beers, especially these lighter ones. Yeah. Um, so after the mashing, this convoluted mashing, yep. we go on to uh, fermentation. Okay. And this is a fascinating thing. I'm going to tip my hat to Stan Hieronymus, who went there first. He figured this stuff out. Well, of course, the Germans knew first, but he By brought way, it back it, to us. This might be an old bottle. I'm sorry. This might be an old bottle, but it's a very interesting flavor profile because you do taste a little of that cascade coming through. You do. In in Kelheim, it, really the, pops. these hops really pop. Yeah, I know. It's very subtle here. You'd have to I sort of know it's there and looking for it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's a little, uh, little lemony kind of undertone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, Stan Hieronymus was the one who alerted me to all this stuff, and so I made sure to figure it out my, for myself. But um, the fermentation is when all the phenols and uh, uh, banana are built. So if you do open fermentation, mm-hmm. instead of putting in a cylindro conical, you'll get uh, 50% more phenolic character, mm-hmm. and you'll get uh, twice as much isoamyl acetate. Okay. So all the best ones are made with, like the, the ones with the most character are made with these open, uh, open fermenters. And they're flatter and wider, uh-huh. uh, which also helps encourage that. Lots the of shape, area. Yeah, yeah the, shape, the shape is a big deal because uh, in the cylindroconicals, you have a lot of pressure putting down and yeah. it inhibits the action of the yeast. When you open it up, uh, take that pressure away, the yeast 
become more profligate in mm-hmm. producing their flavor compounds. Uh, and um, we're going to use a photo of the open fermentation vessels at Schneider. So when people see this, oh, excellent, they'll see that. And I, I'll say there are ways in which uh, Hans Peter is. Uh, uh, he just cracked me up. We walked into this, the three <laughs> of us, and he got nerve, visibly nervous. <laughs> and he said, "I just he was trained at Weinstefan or one of the big breweries, right. and he was not trained as a." vice beer brewer as no one was and he just happened to get a job at, at schneider but his training taught him that everything in like everything in his fibers said you know that we should not be in here and right. i think he said something like we're a vector for for pollution and he right. just he was, he was very <laughs> anxious about it but we were in this amazing room with these giant vats of bubbling beer it was very cool uh vice beer breweries are fascinating because they have um a piece missing that you would expect to find in other things, in other breweries. It goes into the fermentation, into these big open fermenters. And then instead of going into uh, conditioning tanks, right. like most beer would, yeah. it gets dosed with Speise, which is the German word for food, wort, ah. and goes immediately into the bottle. So ah. it doesn't go to the, it does, it just, is like straight through. So it's all bottle conditioned. It's all bottle conditioned. I think they do keg conditioning too. Right. Um, but yeah. it's a. But it's a. Yeah. It's all conditioned that way. And this this effervescence that we're seeing comes from the Speise. Yeah. They dump a whole bunch of wort in there, and it, yeah. and it produces pretty large volumes because it's still very active fermentation that's happening. And um, and then that's this all this fermentation all this effervescence we're seeing is characteristic of the style. So the big Bavarian breweries now will do a a vice beer typically. But these breweries are talking about Schneider, uh, in particular, is is a exclusively a Weiss beer brewery. Yeah, and is that true? I'm gonna <laughs> reveal my ignorance. Is that true with Weinstefaner as well? No, no it's they I do think, a they I do think, a hell of a They do lagers, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they do everything. Most most of these breweries are. Uh, in fact, I don't know if there's and a, uh, other than Schneider. Yeah, Schneider okay. may be the only Weiss beer brewery. That's the only beer they make. Um, they they do a lot of different kinds of Weiss beers. But yeah. that's all they make. Okay, they're all vices. Interesting. Yeah, and yet they're they're surviving and maybe even thriving on. I think they're thriving. The, yeah. I mean, just to throw a few more bones, uh, Hans Peter's way. Right. He, when I, the day I visited, <laughs> um, it was just I happened to be fortunate that he had all his uh, exporters or importers or whatever they are, the people right. in other countries who import his beer. Yeah, coming to learn about what they're selling. Yeah, so they, we got to taste literally everything that he had. Available, including some pretty exotic barrel-aged beers that he had, which were uh, had had in, been uh, inoculated with brat, uh-huh. and they tasted like you know wild beers, and that blew my mind. And he said, you know, there's nothing uh, in Ron Heitzkeboat that says you can't you can't make beer this way. It's exactly the same way, and this was been totally traditional, right? You know, a hundred years ago. But now here's my question: wow, Are those right. those beers he sells largely to the export market, or does he sell them domestically? Because my impression of the beer culture in Germany is still very traditional, so th- not very promiscuous. Yeah, I think he I think he sells the barrel aged stuff, uh, and he does some some long aged uh, Aventinus, which is his Weizenbach. Um, I think that stuff is mostly exported. I don't know that Germans are drinking a lot of that stuff, but the the Weizen beer. I have not seen outside of Kelheim or outside of that region. A lot of that, or the uh, the hoppy stuff that I'm 
I meant to say. Mm-hmm. So he he did a Nelson Sauvin thing. He ordered all these Nelson Sauvins, and he got them. And like me, he thought they were a horrible hop. <laughs> he thought it was going to ruin his beer. But he figured out a way to work with them and made this amazing beer. Uh-huh. And um, they're very much like hazy IPAs. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, he's getting a ton of, of character out of this. And he's he's also been, he was one of the main brewers who was um, talking to the Hollertau mm-hmm. growers about trying some of these new varieties because he saw the potential in them for his traditional beers. And right. he, you know, that was, that was incredibly important in the development of this stuff because they needed customers to buy those. It'd be interesting to see over the next 10 years, whether German consumers start becoming a little bit more promiscuous, a little bit more interested in, in stepping outside the tradition. Uh, because in many ways, Germany is like that, but in some ways it's very high bound. So totally. All right, we have one more beer. Yeah. So now let's now let's, that I'm done talking, I'm going to open it. Yeah. So let's. So now we're we're gonna we're gonna talk about the interpretations of vice beer in the United States, and you just completed your big book about the Widmers. And what's interesting about the Widmers is that when they started their uh, brewery, uh, the beer I think unex- am I correct in saying unexpected to them that took off and sort of built the brewery was their Hefeweizen. Yes. Or no. as they would say, Hefeweizen, sorry. Which is the correct pronunciation. Yes, I'm sure. But it's not the correct beer. Right. The beer, the beer they made had nothing to do with uh, the beer that we're talking about today. Yeah, so I was. Uh, so that's where I was my segue. Uh, but this is not that. <laughs> uh, we, can talk, we can go back and talk about that next. But uh, this is uh, Fuzztail. Fuzztail Hefeweizen by Sun River Brewing Company here in Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it is the uh, 2017 gold medal winner at GABF, so this, for the, this for past a, year. For the German-style Hefeweizen? Yeah. I assume they have like six categories. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I didn't study it that closely. I hope it's the German style. Maybe it's not. Okay, but they call this an American wheat ale, so let's see. Oh, American wheat ale. I may have blundered on this. <laughs> but no, but it's interesting how this is uh, how this is interpreted around the globe. So talk, uh, well, let's talk about this first, huh? Yeah, well, you don't the, get, it's not popping esters, by the, the way, speaking the, of American. Well, the it looks perfect. Mm-hmm. It looks, it's got that honey color uh, body, but it's cloudy, and it built up this beautiful rich head. It does look perfect, but it has nothing to do with German head. Oh, I blundered. Well, <laughs> no, no, try it. You, you tell me whether you this, think There's so. a Widmer thing. Is that what it is? Well, I, I'm going to leave it to the... Mm. Yeah, totally. In fact, it's got a fair fair number of American, American hops. hops. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> so let's actually let's Very talk nice about beer. that. Let's talk about that for a second. So talk so talk we, about the history of Hefeweizen of Widmer's Hefeweizen for a second, so we can talk about how wheat beers have been interpreted. Yeah, the Widmer's. Um, we'll have to do a, a podcast. I've got a bunch of cool tape from them, so we, we can do. We will. Yeah, yeah, we can do a podcast on on their whole thing. But they started out trying to brew alt beer, right? And. It, We'll tell that whole story, but it wasn't selling. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were almost out of business. Right. And uh, Rob and Kurt were talking to each other, and they said, uh, maybe we should brew something else. And they said, why don't we brew that that wheat beer you make, Kurt? And so they brewed their Hefeweizen. Uh, they were making Weizen beer, and because it's 1984, remember, 85 at this sure. point. 
they think it you you can't serve a beer that looks this cloudy. Nobody will buy it. Right. So they're filtering the hell out of it. <laughs> but it's just a homebrew recipe. So it's a wheat yeah. beer. So it's got some wheat. It's got some American hops, and it's got American yeast, probably right. It's got the alt beer yeast. So it's oh. got a German yeast, but okay. it's not POF it's not, positive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's just pretty. <laughs> it's, it's, the wrong yeast. it's fermenting out perfectly clean. Right. And uh, they're getting this. Uh, what what they really made was a classically American beer. Yeah. It was a hazy. It was an early hazy American beer. It was wheat made beer. with. A, and American then they and, and they had the someone had the brilliant idea of suggesting you serve it with a lemon, yeah. which in the absence of <laughs> esters, you could kind of create your own little, and uh, so that became it, kind of a classic. And it added added to the citrusy. I think they were, uh, you know, the, at the time they were using what was a fairly large amount of uh, Cascade hops, mm-hmm. so it was already pretty bright and citrusy. Right. And you put that citrus on there, and it mm-hmm. actually works as a m- n- mnemonic for the flavors that are in there. And so it kind of harmonized. And I yeah. think here in Oregon, especially one of the reasons we, I think took to hops was because it was presented to us, you know, in a lot of different ways, but this was one of the ways in which hops were presented, not as bitter beer face, but as this other kind of characterful yeah. thing. But, you know, in many ways it, it, you know, un, sort of, it wasn't strategic, but it became kind of a gateway beer, right? Because now you, here is a light, easy drinking, very quaffable, beer that could uh please people who were used to you know hams and rainier and cores and bud uh true yeah and so it uh i imagine that if you <laughs> brewed a very traditional german vice beer with all of the phenols and with all <laughs> with all of the, the 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 stuff that the yeast was throwing off people would just be like whoa yeah. i think that's right it's still one of those flavors that a lot of people the first time they taste it, they think it's weird and they don't like it. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an acquired taste, and once you acquire it, you know, uh, fruit and spice is sure. Totally but it's like, but, but I would say that I would argue that sort of the way the craft beer has gone in general is is it's all about all about uh, what an economist might call derived demand. It's you're teaching people what beer can be, and that these are flavors that uh, uh, are interesting and exciting, and but it takes a while, right? It's not something that you especially if you've been conditioned on on American lagers. Uh, it's not something you're used to. So um, uh, little baby steps were mm-hmm. a way for people to start discovering what beer could be, and now we're full into the, the big giant leaps. <laughs> right. The funny thing is, in Germany, I think the Weizen beer is really uh, also considered a kind of baby steps. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that women drink. And, right. You know, that's a very gendered thing there. Yeah. But in Germany, beer can be a very masculine thing. Actually, in Bavaria, women drink a lot of beer too. But yeah. um, the funny thing is, it's got so much crazy character. It is very Belgian. And yes. And so it's it's one of those weird things that it tastes like Germany to me. And it always has because I was introduced to it as a German beer. And it was just, you know, <clears throat> I mapped that, put that on that that dot in my German beer map on my brain. But mm-hmm. then later on, I started thinking about how crazy and weird it is. So, you know, in many ways, it's much more complex and sophisticated than, uh, than a Kohlsch or a Hellas, which we can talk about. I mean, you could make the argument that those are more delicate and accomplished beers because they have so little going on. But, yeah. but you know, flip, flip the script and say, this is a weird beer. It's, yeah. You're right. It's very much like a Belgian beer. Um, so going out, uh, what for those people who are interested in discovering vice beers on their own um uh can you give some recommendations of gateway vice beers traditional german vice beers to go look for in your beer store uh well uh 
the Schneider, but the it's not quite Sch typical. Schneider Weisse is great. I think everybody should drink that. Okay. Um, Weinstefan is the other kind of classic one, yeah. which okay. wasn't actually at the, the, the beer store that I went there, but I'm kind of glad that we try to Dunkelweizen. Einger makes a really mm -hmm. excellent version. Okay. Um, I believe there's a brewery in Texas that makes a fantastic version of this. So if you're... That's sort of a traditional German. Yeah. Is it Live Oak? Is that a brewery, uh, folks? Um, <laughs> we'll, I think it's called Live Oak. We'll put Oak. it in the program notes. Yeah. <laughs> Once we look it up. I'll look that up. It's in the beer Bible. But um, they made one of the better American versions I'd had when I wrote that book, and I've had it since, and it continues to impress. Okay, good, good. All right, so uh, let's move on to the mailbag. Uh, yes, mailbag. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, we got this first one from... Uh, Kevin Spiller in Red Deer, Alberta, Canada. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about Red Deer, but Red I love Deer, the name. of course. You know Red Deer. Red <laughs> De I think I think if memory serves, Red Deer is one of the towns that uh, has a junior hockey team that competes with the Portland Winterhawks. I don't know anything about that. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think so. Well, uh, it sounds like the kind of moose jaw. Yeah, well, Red Deer, exactly, and Medicine Hat. <laughs> Those are the three obscure Canadian towns I know because of junior hockey, major junior hockey. Those those just seem like uh, Canadian names to me. They're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Medicine Hat. What is up with that? Medicine Hat's the best name ever. It is. And Moose Jaw. It's pretty close. But it's what like, does it mean, I wonder? Uh, Medicine Hat. I have no idea. <laughs> Somebody should tell us that. All right. Anyway, Kevin had kind of a long uh, question here, and I'm going to try to... Uh, well, he actually had two questions. The first question... We By the way, Medicine Hats must, must be like a First Nations thing. It must be it like must some, be. some name of the healer of the tribe or something. I would, I would think so too, yeah, but... I don't know. It doesn't make sense Sorry, I stepped outside on, that context. I stepped on you once again. Go ahead. <laughs> now you're full of vice beer. Uh, so he asked two questions, and the first one is, is pretty easy, and we can just go uh, off that. He, he, was, he had listened to our Welcome to Birvana uh, pod from last year or a while ago where we talked about the best breweries here in, in town. And he okay. said, um, are there any other festivals apart from the OBF Oregon Brewers Fest that you would highly recommend or is the OBF still the best? Mm. And there are a few, he's considering taking a swing down the coast, uh, the West coast of America with his buddies and he was considering stopping at some fests. So I have a couple I would mention. Okay, one, one, one you're gonna have to wait until next year cause it just ended, Yeah, which is the fruit beer fest the literally beer fest. just ended two days ago okay. this weekend. Um, very nice thing. Uh, that Highlights all kinds of beer made with fruit. We're getting much, I would say, we, the American brewers, are getting much better at using fruit and beer. Right. Uh, the Holiday Ale Fest here in Portland is kind of a big deal. Um, happens early December, and there are lots of, almost all the beer there is specialty stuff made for the fest, and it's, you know, very wintry, so yeah, it's booming, big, barrel and aged out, spicy, stuff. and right. But it's uh, yeah, it's a really nice. Uh, it's a very well run festival in a in a big tent with clear ceilings underneath the big Christmas tree on Pioneer Square. You're right. It's a fantastic venue. Yeah. And then the last one is the Festival of the Dark Arts, which is in Astoria in I think like February, which is a stout fest and is routinely described by those in the know as our coolest fest. Okay. Uh, I've not been. I have not been either. I keep meaning to go, and I haven't been. But uh, that's in February, and by God, I'll go one day. And I'll be kind of obnoxious and say that I'm not super into fests in general. Like, if I were planning a beer trip, I wouldn't necessarily plan around fests, but I understand. 
Like I would, I would just go, I want to see the normal stuff from all the different breweries and go check them out. But well, and that's, that's an interesting thing is now it is the case that if you go to a fest, you don't get the normal beer. So you would not actually get to taste the normal beer. Yeah. But they're fun. On the other hand, we're going to soon have our annual, uh, look at the OBF and what it means about beer soon. Look for that. Cause that's, that fest is next week, next week. Ne- sorry, next month. Yeah. So uh, his next question uh, that he, t- that he tag- tags onto this is, is for me. And uh, essentially it's about uh, uh, whether there's a craft beer bubble. Uh, there's been a number of breweries apparently open up around him in o- Alberta. Uh, a bunch of new craft... Red Deer's rocking. Red, Red Deer's rocking the craft beer. Uh, Alberta maybe in general is... Um, but he's worried about a bubble and he's wondering if the differences in a place like Portland versus Alberta... Uh, make it much more likely, and not just Portland, but places like Denver, San Diego, other beer, big beer cities, make, make it much more likely that uh, there's a bubble going on uh, in a smaller market, and particularly a market that doesn't attract the same amount of beer tourism. Mm-hmm. And so this is interesting. So first I'm going to just, I want to riff on the beer tourism bit because uh, I asked you and you got a surprising response. I was going to say that I think that beer sort of tourists in Portland represent uh, still a very small fraction of the custom in a typical craft beer, especially well-known craft beer establishment. And you? It's a big deal. Uh, yeah. The So I don't know about Oregon in general, but mm-hmm. in Portland, um, the the people who come here, at least partly for the beer, mm-hmm. is, a, is a giant number. And um, I know Travel Oregon and others have looked into this. Right. Um, and, and I think the number of people who come here largely for the beer the number, the percentage of tourists is something like ten percent. Wow! Who come so here for really only the beer? Big, yeah, really is a big destination. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's something that's, it's actually a magnet. It's bringing people here. Yeah, it is <clears throat> actually bringing people here, and it, you know, and it's in numbers bit, that we would be noticeable to a craft brewer. Yeah, totally. Okay, and especially if you're, uh, you know, a Cascade Barrel House, where your, your dollar depends on a lot of tourists, because that's not the kind of place you just go and it's not a neighborhood pub. Yeah. Um. So I would say. That can be a, a, a pretty big deal. On the other hand, I would say, well, that you wanted to talk about tourists first. So that's my comment on tourists. Yeah. So uh, getting back to the bigger question, uh, there's two things I would say about that. One is the thing I've already mentioned once, which is drive demand, which is it's very hard to predict what the final market's going to look like in a place like Alberta, because there's probably a lot of people there, if my Canadian relatives are any, any example, uh, are Molson and Labatt's people. One or the other, not both, uh, and um, still are pretty uh, uh, relatively ignorant, haven't yet been exposed to what craft beer can be, and it's really hard to know how how big that market is until that process starts, and it is a process. It's the process of teaching people what beer can be and starting getting them interested in beer and, and, and building that local demand. Uh, so I would say that you know I would be cautious about declaring a bubble uh, for that reason, one. Um, and two, the other thing I would say, and I've said this before on the pod, is I would be also um, uh, a little circumspect about uh, how you feel about a bubble because one thing um, that good competition brings is quality. And so just because a few breweries fail, it might not be because you've saturated the market. It might just be because that they're not as good. Uh, and so competition is great for a local beer culture. Uh, I think competition mm-hmm. is vital for a local beer culture because it's very easy to get uh, sort of 
I don't know what the right euphemism is, but to rest on your laurels or get comfortable, whatever, with uh, the beer you're producing. But constant, uh, I can tell you that constant pressure among the Portland brewers have raised the game up everybody. I mean, totally. the beer we drink today is so much better than 10 years ago, even at the very best places. Um, so so, there's a, so that's sort of my two comments about, about a bubble, which is, I can't say, I think you're right, according to what Jeff said, that, that you can't be as reliant on beer tourism to, to, float, to float more breweries. And it may be true that in Portland, we have a little bit of an outsized brewery per capita because of it. Uh, but in general, I think that there's a lot of drive demand to be produced out there. So once you teach people about craft beer, I think there's probably a big market you can probably exploit. Uh, and the second is, you know, brewery closings are a sign not just of bad markets, but also of potentially uh, growing uh, a skill. I would add that uh, beer is culture, and you have micro cultures all over the place. We we have you, you mentioned uh, Portland, Kevin, but uh, I would point you to Bend and. Uh, Hood River and, and to a lesser extent Astoria, tiny little towns that weigh, punch way above their weight in mm-hmm. terms of breweries. Yeah, and it's because local locals have grown to uh, you know appreciate local beer. Uh, in each one of those towns, you're going to find kind of a, a major, at least in Bend and, and Hood River, a major anchor brewery mm-hmm. that spawned all these other little breweries and taught the city how to how to drink. And so the penetration of craft beer in those uh, places is far higher than it is than in Portland. That than in yeah than in other places. So you you can't guarantee that that will happen anywhere. But um, yeah, because he asked a specific question about whether you can use Portland numbers breweries per capita as a good benchmark. Right. And I would I would agree that markets are specific, so it is hard to say. Um, and also, it's also you know we've. Jeff and I experienced just on our trip to Seattle how different the cultures can be in different yeah. cities. And in Portland, there's a very neighborhood culture. And so there are a lot of breweries just because there's quite a few just neighborhood brewer pubs um, that exist. They're breweries, they brew, they have a really strong tie to their neighborhood and to the local demand. Uh, it's not the same everywhere. But here, I think that we have a very hyper-local uh, markets. Yeah, you look at um, places like Vermont, small population Mm-hmm. great brewery density you look at places like south dakota yeah similar population no breweries so yeah. you just it's like it's hard to know yeah, and by the way if alberta becomes sort of the province in canada that known for its craft beer and it starts exporting to other provinces in canada then you know the the growth potential is that's right is really high alberta could be the bend of canada yeah, exactly yeah uh okay, okay so the other one yes. i'll read this one because it goes to you all right and i don't have anything to say on it uh, this one comes from Kyle Navis. I think I asked questions before. Uh, and he directs it at Patrick. Um, yeah. Given that I can now buy four packs of eight-ounce cans of various sparkling wine varieties at Trader Joe's, how come the same format hasn't caught on uh, for especially strong beers? And he describes drinking a triple and wishing uh, he could he didn't have to drink you know a big bottle all at once. And then he says, and <laughs> Patrick and I... Uh, Raised our eyebrows at this because we didn't remember this, but whatever. Uh, additionally, I remember you guys discussing how... We also for- agreed not to admit that we didn't remember. I know, and I immediately blew that. <laughs> <didn't> I? <laughs> Just, I immediately blew that. Uh, <laughs> I remember you guys discussing how four packs of 16-ounce tall boys give you eight ounce less liquid than a six-pack 12-ounce bottles. But heuristics mean customers see them the same. Do you think this bias would work in a brewery's favor? So you can take those in whatever order you want. Mr. Economist, go. Let's, let's take them in, in the order they, they, they've been received. Uh, so I don't have anything brilliant to say about 
the eight ounce cans, except that I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. I think it's, I'm a big fan of your thinking there too, Kyle. Yeah. I think, I think it's absolutely appropriate. And I also have this, uh, uh, I think I got a, a Magnum. It was, it was a Magnum of, um, some kind of big Belgian beer. Uh, I'm the only beer drinker in my, fa- in my family. There's no way I was opening that thing, uh, and it sat in my refrigerator forever uh, right. because because I couldn't imagine a time in which I could open it and actually enjoy it and not spoil a whole bunch of beer. So I think it's entirely appropriate. I think it's just another sign of the maturation of the market. I bet you're right. I bet we'll see it soon. Um, uh, but it's also true that a lot of these beers are kind of purchases more of a, as a one-off than something. So uh, we can get back to sort of morph into both questions because I started thinking based on your question, I started thinking about what multiple packs of beer really represent. They're really about beers that you're going to have mm-hmm. you know, day in, day out. And so a lot of these big, giant Belgian triples, for example, an 8% Belgian triple is not something I, I would necessarily typically have you know, two, three times in a week, right? It's sort of this one-off. So I think there's, two, there's, there's kind of two, uh, two aspects to this. One is the fact that um, you often buy these singularly um, because they're a, a treat you're going to have every once in a while. Um, but it's true. They're packaged in much too big a package. I agree 100%. And I think that cans are fantastic, and, and little 8-ounce cans are perfect. Um, uh, but the multiple pack of an 8-ounce can of a triple is an interesting conundrum. Now, going back to the heuristics. Uh, yeah, I think that breweries really get away with a lot of these cheap heuristics. Like, I think that the 22-ounce bomber is the best thing that ever happened to the economy <laughs> of a small brewer because they charge ridiculous prices for them per ounce. Uh, and yet, uh, consumers make heuristic shortcuts. And they see big bottle, four bucks. Yeah, <laughs> must be good. A bunch of little cans for, for seven bucks or whatever it is. No, it can't be good. Uh, so I do think that um, uh, uh, consumers look at you know four big cans and six smaller cans is probably something similar and that brewers can get away with pricing uh that exactly as you say but i'd also say that there is and i've mentioned this before in the pod there is something that we call nonlinear pricing or volume pricing which is a typical strategy you see everywhere which is the more you buy the lower price per ounce you get you see it in sodas at the soda fountain you see it uh, in lots of things. You see it when you get a, like, you know, three socks. Toilet paper. Yeah, you know, a pair of socks for four bucks or three pairs for 10 or something like that. We see it all the time, and it's a very classic uh, pricing strategy for businesses um, to charge a, a volume discount to high-demand consumers. And it turns out, and if you'd like to come to my class, I can show you exactly how it works out. It turns out that this is a profit-maximizing strategy. So um, just the fact that you charge more in smaller quantities, sort of pack for in packaging in smaller total quantities is uh, a classic econ- uh, economics pricing trick. Well, I shouldn't call it a trick. Pricing strategy um, that works out well for, uh, for breweries. So basically, I think that you can, if you really want a heuristic, the heuristic is simply this. The more you buy in one go... So if you've got a six-pack of 12-ounce cans, excuse me, then you have 72 ounces, you know, that's going to be more than if you buy, oh, God, now i got to do the 4 times 16, so that's 40, and then 24, 64. so 64, thank you. <laughs> so 64. Typically, you're going to get a lower price per ounce the, more, the bigger the, the package you buy. That all sounds wise to me. <clears throat> but I, I will say, that. actually, the cost, cost and now, wise. And now we're seeing some craft brewers going to 12 packs and 15 packs and other things for exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. To, yeah. And with lower price points. Yeah. 
By the way, just speaking personally, I really like the the sixteen ounce cans. That's I've decided that's my optimal. That's my optimal. Well, you should packaging. be you should be very happy then because it looks to me like, and especially we're going to talk about this in the future. I'm hoping to get some tape on this, okay. so let's not go down that road too far. But um, I think twenty twos here in Oregon are going to be replaced by uh, five hundred milliliters, which is still a bit more than six. It's like seventeen ounces. Yeah. And a lot of them are going to be refillable bottles. Yeah, so, like the old German way. Speaking of German beer, yeah, Oregon is about to implement this whole new thing, and uh, I got—I've been—I've been covering it, but I haven't written anything about it, so no one knows. But uh, our yeah. old friend Jules Bailey, who tried to pass the um, Honest Pint Act when he was a legislator, yep. an Oregon legislator, is yep. is heading this up, and uh, um, we're already seeing breweries shift to that bottle size even before this happened, just because I think other people were finding it's an easier bottle yeah. size to sell. So. And once it gets ingrained, it's pretty simple. Like in Germany, they buy they buy these little uh, 12, pa- 12 little sort of half rack of 12, uh, 12 bottles of beer, and they come in these very sturdy plas- plastic crates. Yeah. And then they just drink them, they put the bottle right back in the crate, and they take the crate right back to the store and just exchange for the new one. So once it gets ingrained, it's easy. Yeah, although that, that, that habit, which is probably not, Step on, I know. Step on anything now, but it's a, it's a tease. Yeah, it's a tease. That habit is is um, actually peculiarly uh, German and really works well in a society in which you are happy to buy twelve of the same beers at a time, which Americans aren't right now. So it's interesting. Oh, very good point. Okay, yeah. that's it. That's your tease. <laughs> Tune in next time. All right. So uh, I guess that wraps it up, Jeff. That's that's all she wrote yeah, except so, for the stuff going out yeah thanks very much for listening to the podcast we'd like to encourage you to rate us and subscribe to us on itunes which helps other listeners find us that's right especially rate us i mean do both but if you haven't rated us do rate us yeah and rate that, us highly yeah don't rate us if yeah, you're five gonna, stars if you man us. we're definitely five stars Come on. oh oh and we didn't in the intro we forgot to to to, to uh uh plea for an advertiser that's right <laughs> You're a little late now. Yeah, if, all you've, you've, if you've lasted all this way and you want to give us money, please give us money. I know. It's so embarrassing, too, to be pleading. So uh, prevent, prevent this embarrassment from happening. Your logo here. Uh, your, lo- your logo here. Uh, we we are currently unsponsored, and we'd be delighted for a sponsor. Yeah, we would love to, we would love to uh, have somebody join us as a sponsor. I have a sponsor on my blog, and it can be good both going both ways. So let us know if you're interested. All right. Uh, how to contact us? Please do contact us. By the way, uh, we're going to put this World Cup poll up on Twitter. Uh, we'll put it on both our Twitter feeds so we can see uh, what the different audiences. Ooh, think. that's really interesting. That is <laughs> that's a side. If, kind if you want to, if you want to play with the the experiment, you can go to both Twitter feeds. Uh, Jeff, of course, is at Bervana, and I am at uh, Beeronomics. Um, if you'd like to send us a, uh, some feedback, um, please email at Jeff at Beervanablog.com or you can visit the Beervana Blog Facebook page. Uh, Jeff, of course, blogs at Beervana Blog and tweets at Beervana. And you're supposed to say... Oh, uh, what am I supposed to say? Patrick, Patrick tweet. Well, you just said it. You did, you tweeted at Beeronomics. Yeah, so that's in true. the poll. So yeah. <laughs> all right. So we have. Sorry, I'll, but I was also just gazing off into space. I sort of I'd lost focus <laughs> momentarily. You're, yeah, it's the time of day. <laughs> you're now you're now checked out. Okay, uh, that's what happens when you give Jeff some beer in the afternoon? Yeah. All right. So speaking of beer in the afternoon, I'm going to grab a beer here. I think I'm grabbing the uh, the uh, the Weinstefaner. Yes, I know. I'm grabbing the Dunkel because he's the only dark one here. Oh, I better go for Hans Peter. Hans Peter, yeah, the Schneider. Okay, I can't. Uh, 
Well, we can kind of clack it at the bottom, but this is the wrong... I'm wrong-footed over here. With this Mine class. is right. Yours is wrong. But All here right. we go. All right. Cheers, Jeff. Uh, prost, Patrick. Prost. Prost.